Good evening. This lecture will be Leiloi Nishmat Dvora Bat Mercedes, Ruven Ben Yehudit Silverman, and Leiloi Nishmat Miriam Bat Israel Dov, Tzvi Hirsch Ben Rabbi Aaron Shmuel Kavayashar, and Leavdi Lerefuat Gavriel Ben Frida, and Lerefuat Yechezkel Ben Aima Achdut. And also, לרפואת ברוך בן נקדם, להצלחה זכריה יונתן בן אביגיל, עלייה ברוכניות בעזרת השם. טוב, we are getting close to פורים, ברוך השם, and nine days is going to be the קריאת המגילה, started אדר ב', שנכנס אדר מרבים בשמחה. It's going to be Purim, and then right after that, a month later, Pesach. Time is flying, as you can see. A lot of people ask me about giving money to the poor people. That's the time of Tzedakah, between now and Pesach. It's a very good time to give Tzedakah. And Purim day, everyone who opens his hand, you must give him something. That's why it's recommended if you go to Purim parties or to the shul, to have a lot of singles with you. A lot of the kids come, teenagers come, a lot of people just give all day money to people. It's very good. But that's, the main, that's not the main uh, tzedakah. The main tzedakah is to give money to Talmidei Chachamim, people that sit and learn Torah, put their life into the Torah, like my guys in Yeshiva in Yerushalayim or the guys here in Monsi in Yeshiva. Serious people, no smartphone, no laptop, no internet. No connection to the evilness of this world, only pure Torah and mitzvot and prayers with the highest level of holiness you can reach in this generation. Of course, it's all relative. In this generation, it's the highest level you can get. You devote your life to, to Torah and to tefillot and you live in a simple, poor lifestyle with no materialism. What can be better than that? You put your money on these guys it can go wrong. All the mitzvot they do, all the Torah they learn, with devotion, with avat Hashem. You see, sometimes you give someone that learns Torah, but he's also one leg in the nonsense lifestyle. He does have materialism. He does go to places that a Ben Torah not supposed to go. He may even have uh, all kinds of electronic things that destroy all the holiness of his Torah. You know, it's similar to someone who tried to boil water at the same time throw, keep throwing ice in it. You know, uh, yeah, the water are trying to boil, but you keep throwing ice in it, you defeat the purpose. When you learn, you have to learn in holiness, Baruch Hashem. So anyone who wants to give matanot le'avionim between now and Purim, and also for Pesach, for Yom Tov, you can send it on my zel, gmail.com, or you can send a picture of a check. To my email, rabbimizrahi at gmail.com. Just take a picture of the front of the check and email it. That's it. And we can, we can deposit it on the app. So that's the announcements for today. Uh, as you all know, we're in the middle of a war. It's already 11 days of war. Thousands of people already died. Hundreds of civilians. The Israeli Prime Minister that is running after Kavod, honor. That's all what he does. He wants to be acknowledged. 
he has this mental disease of pride, he's going to do everything he can to get attention. You know, like I say, you have to put him in a kindergarten and give him a lollipop to play with the kids. That's where he belongs. But in the meantime, he runs the show. He tried to pretend that he's in a league of Putin and other leaders. Try to imitate Netanyahu, yeah? So he goes and pretends that he's somebody important, you know, negotiator, the borer, to try to make himself some, you know, good name. In the meantime, he jeopardizes Israel. Because if something will go wrong and we get into a conflict with Russia or other countries, who knows what's going to be? Can only lose from that, unfortunately. So anyway, uh, the war is still going on. And any minute, it can turn without realizing into a third world war. Because if now Poland will be involved, which they, they ever say now that Poland wants to attack with some airplanes, Poland also belong, they already belong to NATO. If Poland will attack and will be attacked, they will force all the other countries to participate in a war. And in an hour, you have a world war. And it could become Gog Magog. Last week we spoke about it. Last lecture I gave is very popular. People like action. They hear war and current events. So it always does double than others. Instead of running after Torah, people run after current event. We give them the benefits of the doubt that current event connects to the Torah. Because everything that happens in the world is from Hashem. Every bullet, every bomb that falls, every location that is attacked was all written in Rosh Hashanah. Remember Rosh Hashanah in Elul a few months ago? In Rosh Hashanah, when Hashem came to the country, Ukraine, he judged every country. He decided that in Ukraine, such and such people, amount of people will die. Every one of them was named. This Vladimir, this Alex, this whatever their names are. With adults and with children. Every one of them, of these Ukrainians, was announced that he's going to die on Rosh Hashanah. Every Russian soldier that got a bullet to his head or a bomb on his head or in his tank got burned was written on Rosh Hashanah. The war was decided on Rosh Hashanah. Everything Hashem decided on Rosh Hashanah. Now we are watching exactly Hashem's decision. We didn't finish to watch it. We don't know yet how the movie is going to end. We are in the middle of it or in the beginning of it or maybe close to the end of it, only Hashem knows. He's the director. So now everybody has to get himself used to think according to the Torah. Don't think according to New York Times and to the college and to other stupid things that influence you. You have to get yourself used to think Torah. What does it mean to think Torah? That your knowledge, your mind, will be subject to the mind of the Torah, the mind of Hashem. Meaning, when you see a tree fall on a car, it's not random and it's not nature. It could have been a different tree and a different car. It's Hashem. And the person that got it, it was written on Rosh Hashanah. I want to show you one of the worst things that you can imagine. I, I don't know if you know, but these Ukrainians, most of them, it's safe to say that most of them are very, very cruel anti-Semite people. Very cruel. 
sometimes even worse than the Nazis. In World War II, they murdered 1.4 million Jews. But they did it in such a cruel way. They would get a husband and wife on the street, abuse them, laugh at them in the street, shoot their husband in the head. When the wife falls on him, screaming, shoot her in the head. And then the children are crying, they shoot them in the head. They killed over a million Jews. They were very happy to help the Nazis to kill as many Jews as possible. Some of the biggest criminals of the war were Ukrainians that they killed hundreds of thousands. So to think that 70-something years passed by and they, they, they look like they got away with that, that's kfira, that's heresy. You're not supposed to think like that because everything Hashem does is measure for measure and it's all calculated with the right timing. Many of them have swastikers tattoo. Ukrainians, they're not Germans. Thousands of the soldiers have tattoos of swastikas all over the body and, and tattoos of Hitler on their bodies. Those are the people that many people have mercy on now. Crying for Ukraine. Today the guy from the bank called me up early in the morning, nine something it was. He asked me if I know anyone, any Jewish agency that can help refugees. Why someone walked with him in a bank and he has a family over there. And he was so like frantic, you know, like, wow, paranoid. I gave him a five-minute speech because he's a righteous Gentile, this guy. I gave him a five-minute speech about what the Ukrainians did to the Jews. And apparently he knew history more than me. He's an educated guy. He told me, yeah, you just refreshed my memory. Then he asked me, but what about the kids? I understand, okay, those, okay, fine. But what about the kids? So I told them, John, my friend, kids is only an illusion. There's no such thing, kids. Kids that you see, baby, two years old, five years old. Few years ago, they used to be adults. They just were, were reincarnated. And when they sometimes get punished, it's two, three, five years after they came to the world. Hashem doesn't have to keep them here 40 years to start punishing them. If it's someone Nazi from past life or a cruel soldier who tortured people in a prison and now he was sent back, obviously he was, he was born like a kid. How is he going to be born? 40 years old? He's born as a child. And he's going through suffering. And this suffering is 100% for what he did in his past life. We do not know it. Only God knows it. But to question his decision, that's heresy. I wish it would be that easy with the Jews like it was with that guy. Told me, wow, you put my mind in the right place. I got the whole point. You forgot about the refugees. Not that we don't have to help refugees, don't get me wrong. We have to be humanic and we have to help people. And if we see Goim suffer and we can help them and save their life, it's mitzvah. It's written in the Torah, v'rachamav al kol ma'asav. If you, are, you have an obligation to have mercy on animals, it's needless to say that you have an obligation to have mercy on Gentiles. It's needless to say. If you have a cat that suffers, you have to go and help. If you saw a bird that broke the wing or something, if you can take it to veterinary to help it or to, I don't know what they do, to fix it, you have an obligation to do it. 
If your animals are hungry, you have to feed them before you feed your children. So if you have to behave like this to animals, people are in a much higher level than animals, even non-Jews. So it's needless to say that if you can help them, you have an obligation to help them. However, when you finally see the results of Hashem's decision, you're not allowed to question it. Even though sometimes it looks very bad and very cruel and very sad, yes. But it's the same thing when you see Jews are dying. It also looks very bad, very sad, sometimes very cruel death, and you begin to question your fate. You're not allowed to have question in emunah when it comes to Hashem's decision. If it happened, that means it had to happen. There was no other way. If there was a way just to injure the person, it would get injured. If there was a way just to threaten him or to, to make him fear, that would be the case. If you saw he died, poor guy, poor woman, whatever the case is, feel bad for them. But we will not dare to question God's decision. That's the right thinking of the Torah. If Hashem did it, that means that was the best thing that could have happened to that Jew or to that Goy. You may ask, how can it be good if somebody got a bomb falling on his head or in his house and crush everything he had? How can it be good? The answer is, it's better than to go 500 years to hell. If that was his end and he now goes to heaven and he paid for all his crimes against God and against humanity for 78 years of crimes, that was his end. Ten minutes of suffering, the house got destroyed, and he died. And it saves him from going to hell for 500 years. Isn't it good? If you ask him in advance, which punishment would you prefer? A bomb falling on your head and killing you with your house together? Or 500 years in Auschwitz? What do you think he would choose? He would grab the bomb with no hesitation. And believe me, if he could feed God's feet, Kiss it. It would kiss it a billion times. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's only one bomb. It's only one hour suffering and it's over. Thank you. But when you don't know all the details, you will never agree with what Hashem does because you think you are one of Him, like you're another God. That's what the Rambam say. Ilu yedativ aitiv. If I knew everything that God does, and why, and how, and when, I would be him. Because the only way to know everything that God does and understand it, it's to be him. So if you're not him, you don't understand anything. If you don't understand anything, keep your mouth quiet. Don't talk. That's that Torah. That's what the Torah educates. You don't want to believe what I just say? It's your problem, not mine. I told you, I educated you right now. This is the way a kosher human being has to think. A Jew and a non-Jew. You'll be surprised. There are millions of non-Jews who think like that. Some Arab, some Christian, and some not even religious. But they believe in God. So, Rabotai, it's... We will know soon, I mean, what soon? It could be a week, it could be a month, it could be a year. We will know soon what was Hashem's decision in Rosh Hashanah. Until then, what do we have to do? We have to pray. Whatever happened to non-Jews has to wake up the Jews to repent. That could have been us. The Gemara say, everything that happens in the world in, directly or indirectly is because of the Jewish people. Relates to the Jewish people. 
It's all to wake us up. If you see 10,000 people die in China in an earthquake, it's to wake us up. They got their punishment for their idol worshipping or for other things that they do. But it was mainly to wake us up. See what could have happened to you. You're nothing better than them. They are idol worshippers and you are Michal Shabbos. It's equal. Both of them are serious crimes. So for now I started with them. I will have to get to you. Before I'll get to you, please look at what I've done to them. That's a verse. I thought that by me punishing the nations, you will open up your eyes and understand the point and learn to fix your way. Apparently, it's not always the case. It's not always the case. So, Rabotai, you know, today... I found out that Israel already let more than 15,000 refugees into Israel. 10% of them are Jewish. That means almost 14,000 of them are not Jewish. One of them is a big famous Nazi. All his body tattoos, swastika and pictures of Hitler. Today they send on WhatsApp his picture without a shirt. He was entered into Israel and got a place to live for free. And we're going to have to feed this monster. How many hundreds of Jews, religious, kosher and kosher converts are begging to enter Israel for six years? And I don't let them in. This Nevelot, the Jewish agency. They torture them like you cannot believe what they do to them. Give us this document, give us that. Nazi! Swastikers all over, famous, famous. They send this picture all over, obviously somebody known already, all over on social media. Famous Nazi. In a minute, they let him in. So they have mercy on Nazis and other Ukrainian anti-Semites who wants to slaughter us all as they did before. But they don't care about religious, nice, righteous Jews who wants to fulfill what the law in Israel say, to make aliyah, they don't let. Do you understand why when the time comes, Hashem will wipe all these wicked people up? When it happens, please don't have mercy on them. Do me a favor, enough with this hypocrisy. Because it's written, When Hashem wipe out the wicked people, it's celebration to the world. That leads me to a very good book that I saw this Shabbat. I told you I have a friend, he has more than 20,000 books in his house. And every week he gets at least 10 new ones. Guarantee. He goes once a week to Brooklyn. And what does he do? He comes with a pile of books. Baruch Hashem, his addiction is book. His books. I asked him, how much money you put on, into books over the years? So roughly, that was two years ago I asked him, roughly between five hundred to $600,000. Every book is 20, 30, 40, 50, depends. Some books are a collection item that you cannot get. It's in the black market, you have to pay a lot of money for that. So, you know, when I borrow books from him, he's very happy. I say, why are you so happy to give me books? So I tell you what, because most of my books are brand new on the shelf. Nobody ever opened them. When I give it to you for a month, you make a few lectures from it. You bring me the book half destroyed. So when key people come to my library, they see that a lot of my books were used. 
They think I'm such an important chacham, I have time to go over all these books. <laughs> of course, it was a joke. But he told me, I'm giving you this book on Friday night in a shul, in one condition, you promise to give it back to me by the end of Shabbat. I said, of course, I promise. I brought it back at the end of Shabbat. No. I said, wonderful book. But I didn't finish it. So okay, I'll give you an extension until Wednesday. Since I got an extension until Wednesday, I figure I might as well do quick shiur on it before I have to give it back. What is this book? Derech Musar, The Way of Musar, by Rav Chaim Kanievsky, the biggest rabbi in the world. Questions that he was asked about, things that are hard to understand, hard questions. This question that targets my eye, which relates to what I was just talking about now. Why baseless hatred is called baseless hatred, sinat chinam? Did you ever see someone hate someone without a reason? Usually there's always a reason. You may say, well, an antisemite Nazi that hates Jews for no reason, they didn't do anything to him. He hates them from the brainwash that he was fed. Since he's a child, they told him the Jews are like this and the Jews are like that, and because of them we suffer, so he developed hatred. It's not baseless. In his mind, if you connect him to a light detector and ask him why you hate the Jews, he's going to give you a list of things why. Right or wrong? It's not just because he doesn't like the color of their hair or something. So, and if you hate your neighbor, it's because maybe he's blocking your parking. Maybe make noise until late at night. Maybe bad people come to his house and it's bad example to your children. It has to be a reason why you hate him. If somebody asks you, why you hate your neighbor so much? You're going to have a list of things to explain. Why you hate your partner? Because he does this and this and that in a business. That's why. Why you hate your ex-wife? Because she did this and this and that to me. There's always a reason. I don't remember that you ask someone why you hate Mr. X or Mrs. Y, and he said, to tell you the truth, I have no idea. I really don't know why. Usually it doesn't happen, right? If that's the case, why there is such a term, sinat chinam? Did you ever ask yourself this question? What does it mean, sinat chinam? Baseless hatred. What does it mean? Let's see. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 32, Rashi explains, Sinat Chinam, what does it mean, baseless hatred? Shelo ra'abo dvar avera, sheyeh mutar lisnoto vesono. Translation. When, what is the definition of Sinat Chinam, baseless hatred? That you did not see the person is committing sins against God and any way you hate him. What do you understand from that? That when a person is wicked, and he eats taref, and he steals, and he speaks Lashon Hara, and he dresses or she dresses Nahmadis, it's mitzvah to hate them. That's Rashi. Shabbat, page 32. Don't say, I say. It's clearly, I'm reading to you word by word. 
שלא ראה בו דבר עבירה שיהיה מותר לשנאותו ושונאו. He didn't see by him that he actually violated the rules of the Torah that now it's become permitted to hate him. No. He hates him for no reason, meaning he doesn't... Did you see him committing crimes against Hashem? No. So why you hate him? It's not a permitted hate. You're only allowed to hate him when you see that you warn him not to break Shabbat. And he gets into the car, smile to you, and started and drive. So what do you see from here? The Torah does not stand hypocrisy. Some people, it's mitzvah to love them. Some people, it's mitzvah to stay away from them and don't look at them. Don't let anyone fool you. Today, there's too much nonsense penetrated Judaism by all kinds of cults. Do not let them brainwash you and remodify the Torah, please. There are people that are righteous, mitzvah to be around them, to support them, to help them, to love them, and all the things. And there are people, not only are not allowed to love them, it's mitzvah to stay away from them in any possible way. We will continue. We still have to ask, why you call it sinat chinam? Chinam means free, when you get something for free in a store. Why didn't it say sinah asura, forbidden hatred? Why baseless hatred? It should have said forbidden hatred. There are permitted hatred, and there is forbidden hatred. When a person is jealous with his friend, we don't call it kinat chinam. If you're jealous, what are you jealous with? You have ten times more than him. You have 10 million and he has only one. Why are you jealous with him? Because he can't stand that he has something. This is your nature. You cannot see other people enjoy. It's called Tsar Ein in Hebrew. Narrow eyes. So, but we don't call it Kinat Chinam. It's also base, baseless jealousy. There's no reason to be jealous. If this person is your boss and he's ruling you with the cruelty, and he has tons of money coming to him, and he throw you $10 an hour. And you're jealous, we understand why. At least we understand the reason. But here is the other way around, so why are you jealous? Will the boss would be jealous with his employee that makes $15 an hour? Why? Doesn't add up. By the way, there are two, two people that never jealous with two other people. Who is this, do you know? A rabbi is never jealous with his student. If he raised the student, and the student became just as big as him or better, he not only is not jealous, he's actually proud of it. Look what my student became. Meaning, the student is actually my end. Everywhere he goes, it's like me. Everything he knows came from me, or most of what he knows came from me. So why should I be jealous? I should be happy. The more he succeeds, the more my account will get full. <laughs> I remember one time a friend of mine was working with somebody. And one time he decided to leave, to leave the community with his wife. And uh, he asked me to deliver the letter to the rabbi that he's about to leave his community. Because he was embarrassed to actually give it to him face to face. So I took the envelope and I gave it to him in his house kitchen. What's this? 
he got nervous. Why would I deliver to him a letter like this? I said to him, it's from this family. What is this? I said, I have no idea what's written, but they asked me to give it to you. He opened it up, he looked at the letter for 20 seconds, threw it on the table, and opened the Niagara Falls against them. I'm grateful, how can it be? You know how much time I put into them? You know what I've done for them? I say to him, I don't understand. I'm looking at the letter now. They wrote a beautiful letter that will always be appreciative to you. They will never forget what you've done for them. They're not denying it. They just want to move into a different community. They're not becoming your enemies. They're not starting to fight you. So everything they're going to do in another place anyway comes to you, I say to him. So why are you so angry? What I told him should have made him calm or angrier? It should have made him happy, no? He got even angrier. Ah, you tamim, you naive, you... I felt it's better I run away before he's going to throw something on my head. Why? People think about what's in it for me. Not about the overall picture. For him, he said, you know what? They want to go somewhere else. I wish them good luck. The more they're going to do, the better it is. I hope they succeed. Whatever they do, it counts like I did. That's how it is in Shamaim. So I have to hope they'll succeed or I have to hope that they'll fail because people are so selfish, they don't really think. Their ego is hurt. Instead of thinking about the overall picture, they think about their ego. What do you care about your ego? Care about your profit. From here you see that people love honor more than money. You want to know, you want to see a proof? How many people pay so much money to advertise themselves everywhere with their pictures all over the magazines that comes every week here? Why do you need your picture over there? Why do other people need to see your picture? Not exactly that you're the nicest looking person in the world, you know? Why everybody has to see your picture? Why? Because he wants, I want to know him. And if someone recognizes him, wow, he doesn't sleep two nights from, from, from a, a, you know, a achievement. What an achievement. He became famous. So that's Rabotai Redifat Kavod. Rotev Kavod, everyone who runs after honor, the honor runs away from him. Today they sent a video of uh, Bennett, Yerovam ben Nevat. Nevat Bennett, the same letters. He came back from Putin and Germany thinking, wow, now I'm on the top league of the world leaders. He had to go speak somewhere. There was an auditorium, one woman was in a crowd. Even I did better here tonight. <laughs> One woman, and, they, and someone was filming, all the place was empty. Prime Minister of Israel, nobody, nobody can stand him. No one, nobody, nobody is hated more than him for what he's done. Betrayed everything he promised, deceived everyone, deceived all his voters, went with the Muslim brothers and betrayed Israel. And on top of everything, we found out this week that his mother is not Jewish, meaning he's not Jewish. Now we understand what's going on over here. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have a Jewish soul. 
Does he care giving 53 million to the Muslim brother? Someone with a Jewish soul would give the murderers of his children money to kill them faster? They, they just published that his mother is a reform convert from San Francisco. And I saw an intervie interview with her. She's American. You can see right away. She had a reform conversion, which is nothing. Reform conversion is nothing. He's still 100% an Anjou. Therefore, he was born to her. And he's not Jewish. And that's the second prime minister in Israel that is not Jewish. Who was the first one? Ariel Sharon. Arik Sharon was also non-Jewish. His mother, the same story. Arik Sharon, not Jewish. His mother, Vera, Russian, also reform convert, which is nothing. Rav Goren was the chief rabbi of the Israeli army in his time, and Sharon was uh, the chief of command. He told him, let me convert you. You give your life to fight for Israel, all these wars. You're going to die as a non-Jew. At least let me convert you. Leave me alone with your nonsense. I'm more Jewish than you. Most secular people in Israel don't look at the Jewish identity as a religious term. For them, Jewish is if you live in Israel. That when, that's when you ask them, but all the Arabs that live here and the Russians that came from Ukraine and from, and from Russia, they, they live now here. So that makes them Jewish. That's when they get stuck. The Druzim in the army, they're not Jewish. They don't want to be Jewish. They want to stay Druzim. So because they live in Israel, they're Jewish. So obviously, you know, they don't care. What do they care? Jewish, not Jewish. Whatever happened, happened. So, the answer, why do we call it Sinat Chinam. The Gemara in Masechet Psachim, page 113. This is what the Gemara said. Don't say, I said. I won. Say, the Gemara say. Where? Masechet Psachim, page 113. I'm reading you the source. Mutar o mitzvah. Allow, it's, it's permitted. Or it's a, a, even a mitzvah, an obligation, to hate people that violate the rules of the Torah. Gemara, Psachim, page 113. When a person is not violating the rules of the Torah and you hate him, that's in Atchinam. But if he's a sinner in public, systematically, Everyone commits sins. Everyone. There's nobody, is, no one is an angel. But what's the overall, lifestyle, overall lifestyle of that person? Is he normally Shomer Shabbat and here or there he mess up? Then he counts as Shomer Shabbat. And when he mess up, he's going to have to do tshuva or get punished for that. But you cannot call him Chalel Shabbat. He doesn't drive a car. doesn't touch electric. He walks to the shul. Shomer Shabbat. I violate some rules of Shabbat, sometimes because of ignorance, he doesn't learn. Sometimes because of the heat of the moment, or he was afraid to lose money, or, to, or, or something like that, and he couldn't hold himself. But overall, Shomer Shabbat, eating kosher, yes, he, he, he buys kosher. 
so if here and there he failed, doesn't mean he's a systematically a sinner. Here we're talking about someone that routinely, every day, whatever, not filin, not fila, no kippa, no tzitzit, no shabbat, no kashrut, no nothing. All day lashonara. Someone like that, gemara in masechet pesachim, don't say I said. Okay, mitzvah, or permitted, one of the two. We have to look at the sugiah over there. So that means if a person, if a person does not violate the rules of the Torah, no permission to hate him. The Gaon Mivilna, 250 years ago, the Gra, he said, why does it call Sinat Chinam? Right? Although there is always a reason why a person hates him. Right? The answer of the Gaon Mivilna is, if a person would know that no one can do anything to you unless Hashem decided that on Rosh Hashanah, that you're going to lose, or you're going to get hurt, or all the things that happen to you with this person, he would never get angry at him. It would the same way you're not getting angry at the uh, mailman. If a mailman get, got you an uh, order to come to court, you are being sued by someone. You're angry at the mailman? No, you say, thank you very much for giving it to me. I appreciate you delivered that. Wow, if I wouldn't know about it. It's in one week. You actually appreciate the mailman. So if the mailman brought you the bad news, you're obviously not angry at him, Right? So if someone did something to you, you should have known that it comes from Hashem. So why people will hate him? The answer is, because remember, even when Hashem sends someone to hurt you, why did he choose that someone? There are billions of people. Why him? Why your, your, your damage had to come from that person? If that person did something wrong and it caused you damage or financial loss or whatever the case was, that means that if he was chosen for the job, he himself is guilty of other things. Why? Because we have a rule. Avera goreret avera. Mitzvah goreret mitzvah. And avera goreret avera. Mitzvah is dragging another mitzvah to follow. And a sin is dragging another sin to follow. Right? Meaning, when you begin to do something good, right away you have another opportunity. Another opportunity. If you're starting with bad, immediately you have an opportunity to do more bad. Doesn't mean you have to do it. You can still stop yourself. But the fact that you got a second chance to commit another sin shortly after is because of the first sin. If you're doing bad things and Hashem decides that now the Satan has permission to use you to hurt another person. So the fact that you were chosen to cause him that damage, that means you are not fully clean. You have to check yourself. Sometimes you mean well. You want to help your friend. And you want him to benefit, really, from, from your heart. But you got him a bad investment. Told him, bye, bye, that stock. You know, I made good money with this. I know it's going to go up. I was told, ah, bah, 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 bah. he went and bought it, and he lost money. Obviously, he doesn't blame you, because he knows you're not God. 
it's in the hand of Hashem. And he knew that you really wanted him to benefit. But he still holds something in his heart against you. Why is it? Poor guy. Isn't it enough that he feel horrible already that because of him you lost money? He already feel horrible. Because he wanted you to make money. He meant well. And in the end, something bad happened. So the guy is already suffering as it is. He didn't benefit. He only lost. Because if he give you a good tip to buy something, if you make money, you only tell him thank you. You're not going to start giving him commission. He's your friend. So you can only lose here. Same thing with Shiduchim. Shiduchim, when you make a Shiduch, you can either stay the same or lose a lot. They may hate you forever, the family. If it turns that the guy was bad or the girl was bad. And if you made Shiduch, no, so they gave you a few hundred dollars or a gift. Obviously, you're not doing it for that. Certain mitzvot, there's a lot to lose. So the answer is, there's really no point for that person to hate the other person. Poor guy, you actually have to feel bad for him. He has to feel bad, the other guy, why Hashem used me to make this guy lose money. That means I have to check myself what I'm doing wrong. Why I was shaliach to cause someone a damage. Same thing when you kill someone. It wasn't intentional. You have to go to a shelter city. Ir Miklat could be there 30, 40 years. It wasn't your fault. Someone ran into the road. You're riding on your horse and someone decided to run from behind the tree and jump. And you killed him. It's your fault? No. You didn't want to kill anyone. You're just riding a horse. I have to go to a shelter city now. Lose your business family, yeshiva, all kinds of problems now. Why? You caught someone to die. But it's not my fault. You saw. Here, a lot of witnesses saw it wasn't my fault. Leave me alone. Let me go. You got to go to a shelter city. Why? For me, we learn, even if it's not your fault in this life, it's your fault because of your past life or because of your past actions. That's why Hashem chose you to execute that person. He would not use Rav Chaim Kanievsky to kill anyone. He would not use Rav Ovadia Yosef to kill anyone. He would not use Rav Ben Zion Abba Shaul to kill anyone, or Rav Kuk, or anybody else. But he used you to kill him. If he used you, you better check what you are doing wrong. Because otherwise the Satan will not have permission to use you as his executor. Do you understand the concept? The concept here is clear. So, do we have an expression of Ahavat Chinam? You have Sinat Chinam, baseless hatred. Do we have in Judaism a term, baseless love, that you love someone for no reason? Do we have such thing? You walk in the street, you see a Jew, you're a Jew, he's a Jew, you're religious, he's religious, you run and give him a hug and kiss. How are you, Mendel? Oh, you know me? No. So why you hug me and kiss me like this, with such love? I don't know, I fell in love with you. Do you have such thing? I usually don't see it. <laughs> he called 911, right? In a case like that. <laughs> he, he would press charges. 
for sexual abuse or something like that. Oh, he get hugged me and kissed me. Top. Do we have, you have to understand, when you ask a regular rabbi, do we have something like this in Judaism? Usually he will tell you, give me a week, I'll check every book and I'll be able to tell you. When you ask Rav Chaim Kanievsky, every book in Judaism is in his head. He remembers every line, every line. He will tell you, in a Gemara, thousands of pages, it's not there. Rambam, it's not there. All the Rishrashi, Tosafot, not there. The Ran, this, Shulchan Aruch, not there. He got thousands of books in his mind. There is no such thing Avat Chinam. And they printed right away in a book without double checking. What is it like? Imagine that your brain was Google. That everything you want to know, you have in your brain a search engine. You press like a button in your brain. You search in the entire internet in the world, which is billions of things. Doesn't exist. No, no things was found. How they say no... No input was found. It doesn't, it doesn't exist, this name. What do you mean? In the whole internet, put this name, doesn't come up. Sometimes you, you wonder how people in a life of 80 years reach such level. It doesn't add up. If you have uh, 40,000 books, and each book has three, 400 pages, 200, 400. That's, you know, we're talking millions of millions of pages. How do you read millions of pages in a life of 70, 80, 90 years and remember all of them? Line by line. How is it possible? The answer is, it's a gift from Hashem. If you learn math 70 years, you'll be a great mathematician. But you won't be able to know every question in math, in which book it is, and in what country, and by which author. You won't know. You will know based on how many hours you learn, and that's it. Same thing history. Same thing everything else. Here, when you devote your life to Torah, and you learn and learn and learn, day and night, you don't care about anything, just Hashem and Torah, 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 it's like a snowball. After one year, you learn, let's say, 1,000 hours. Next, second year, the 1,000 hours, it's like 2,000 hours. Next year, the 2,000, it's like 4,000 hours. And the next year, it's like 8,000 hours. And the next year, it's like 16,000 hours. It keeps going like a snowball. What you do in the first year of learning, when you're four years old, what you're going to do in the next year, it's going to be a lot more. And the next year, a lot more. And the more you go over it, the more, the faster, and the more you remember. Why? It's a gift from Hashem. Memory is a gift from Hashem. Why Hashem decided one person will remember and the other one doesn't remember anything? Sometimes you see a person, 60 years later he remembers. You see another person, 60 minutes later he doesn't remember. 60 minutes he doesn't remember. Ask people, what did you eat this morning for breakfast? Half of them don't remember. <laughs> Probably every day you eat bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> Rabotai.
do we have such a thing, Avat Chinam, in Judaism? The answer is no. Why? Because first of all, you have an obligation to love every Jew that keeps the, the commandments. Everyone that is like you, keeping the commandments, you have, you have an obligation to love him. It's an obligation from Torah, so it can never be Avat Chinam. Once it's an obligation, it's like you're working for someone. You have an obligation, you have to work. You don't volunteer. Avat Chinam means you volunteer to love someone. You don't have an obligation. You have to love your parents. It's an obligation to love, to respect. So there is no such thing as Avat Chinam. We have, as the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 97. I give you all the pages, you can go and check. Amarish Lakish. Rish Lakish used to be the head of the gangsters. He was an ex-criminal. He became Baal Tshuva and went to Yeshiva and learned with Rabbi Yochanan many, many years, married his sister in the end, and became one of the most important Chachamim. Rish Lakish say in Agmara in Masechet Shabbat, Page 97, Amar Ishlakish, Achoshed Bekshirim Loke Begufo. If you suspect a person that is kosher, he's not guilty, you suspect him, you expect a damage to your body. If you break your hand tomorrow, your leg, you hurt your back, you tore your knee, Something happened to your eye, you broke a tooth. That's a direct, a direct response to suspecting a kosher person about something that he has not done. That's what the Gemara says. What is the Gemara? What did the Gemara meant? If you suspect someone. Openly, with your mouth, ah, I tell you, this guy stole it. He stole it. He was there. He was the only one in a room. And in the end, they found out it was someone else. And this guy already got hurt, and he left with his embarrassment. Where are you going to find him to apologize? The question is, what happened if you only suspected him in your heart without saying it loud? You're not that wicked. You only suspect, and you already blame the guy. Come on. This is even goyim don't do. Even in a court of the goyim, you are not guilty unless it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So as long as it wasn't, you were not convicted in a court, people have to treat you like you are innocent. Even though no one does it. Because judges, when judges judge in a court here in America, someone famous, or in Israel, the judges are objective? No. They watch television, they listen to the radio, and they drive. The judges that have to judge Benjamin Netanyahu, are they able to be objective after thousands of shows were against him, that he got cigars and all kinds of gifts from rich people? Every day they hear it. The judge is going to be extremely worry that if he would find him not guilty, he won't be able to get out of his house. 
There are a million people in Israel wants to kill him and hang, hang, hang him. You found him not guilty? You're afraid. You're afraid what the public would say. Why? Because it's all over the media. There is never going to be a fair trial. There's never going to be a fair trial. Once it makes it to the show, to the, to the, to the news, and everybody begins to talk, that's what happened with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. In today, yesterday's parasha, two days ago we read. What did we read? People started to talk against Moshe Rabbeinu. Ah, some people were supporting him. Ah, Moshe, Ashrei Yoladeto. How lucky are his parents? Such a tzaddik. Look how he built the Mishkan. And what the other people did? How he became rich. It has to be something fishy. If you think it's only today that people speak. It's already back then. He probably stole. We donated money to the Mishkan. How do we know that all the money went to the Mishkan? Maybe Moshe put it in his pocket. Around Moshe Rabbeinu they speak. Problem here, it's hard to believe. You heard Hashem speaking to him and not to you. Do you really think Hashem would speak to a thief? What do you think? The Torah say Hashem cannot stand liars, deceivers, crooks, thieves. What do you think if Moshe, God forbid, took a penny to his pocket? A penny. One dollar to his pocket. Do you think Hashem would speak to him in public and nominate him to be the head prophet of all the generations? You really that stupid? So I guess when you're jealous with someone, don't look for logic. It doesn't really matter if it adds up, if it makes sense. You shoot. You hate him, you're jealous with him. Whatever he's going to say, you will criticize. He will say it's allowed. Eh, it's too lenient. Don't rely on him. Rabbi Mizrahi, oh, don't listen to him. Huh? Too strict. If you come the next day and say, oh, you know what? I changed my mind. It's allowed. You're allowed to break Shabbat. Oh, you see? I told you be careful for him. It's too lenient. You see, it's allowed. Doesn't matter. It's like the story with the father and his son and the donkey. You remember that or no? One father walked with his boy on the street with the donkey. They both walk and they pull the donkey with his leash. So one person came to the man and said, what kind of a father you are? You have a little boy like this, you make him walk in the sun while you have a donkey. Put your son on a donkey. Let him sit on a donkey. You're right, you're right. He put the son, put him on a donkey. Walked one minute, somebody came to him. Hey, what kind of a father you are? You walk and the little boy sit on a donkey? Well, that's how you teach him to respect his father? Put him down and you sit on a donkey. He sat on a donkey and the boy walks. And he said, one person came to him and said, hey, what kind of a father you are? You don't have mercy on this little boy. You sit like a king on a donkey and the boy walks. You're right. Why don't you pick him up also? You should be on a donkey. There's room for the kid. You're right. Pick him up. So now both of them on a donkey. They walk. One person came and said, excuse me, what kind of people you are? Don't you feel bad for the donkey? Such a hot day and both of you sit on him. What's the 
common sense behind that story. No matter what you're going to do, there's always going to be somebody wicked who has a problem with that. So what's the conclusion? Just do what's right in the eyes of Hashem, regardless of what people think or say. It's the last thing should worry. Should not worry you. You don't have to worry. So now the question is, what happens if you suspect someone that he is the thief? By the way, here Moshe told them, I have all the cheshbon, I wrote everything down. You want to see? That's how much the gold costs, and this how much the wood costs. Everything was written down. Did Moshe have to give them by law if they suspected him that he took the money? Did Moshe have to give them by law a description of all the expenses where the money went to or no? The answer is no. Someone that was nominated for a job and nobody knew him as a very honest person for many years, meaning he does not have a status yet. He just came to the shul a month ago and the rabbi said, who wants to be the gabai? Nobody wants. He said, I don't mind to be. You don't know who he is. If something looks not kosher, you're allowed to come and ask him, can you show us what you did with the money? But if it's someone 20 years in a community is known as a very big Yereshamayim, tzaddik, learning Torah all day, praying with his heart, very, very good, always honest, never touch without permission. You see, someone's pen he won't touch before asking permission. Someone like this that is already known and that's why people chose him for the job, you're not allowed to ask him, show us what you did. That's the rule, you should know it. No, not everyone. Someone that you chose him because of his honesty. Moshe Rabbeinu, you ask him now to prove that he's honest? You know, I'll tell you something. The, the Malbim. Malbim lived from 1879 to 1809. Not that long life. 30 years only, that's it. I'm sorry, the other way around. 1809 to 1879. Seven years, sorry. Seven years. So Ram, Malbim writes, it says, everything was precise. All the money they gave was exactly for the Mishkan. Everything was used in a kosher way. If there was one discrepancy, one, the Shekhinah of Hashem will never come into the temple. The temple the Mishkan, the temporary Mishkan, the Spirit of God will never enter the place and perform all the miracles that happen there daily if something over there was not kosher. Never. Will Hashem come and speak to Moshe after that if he did something not kosher? Absolutely not. We call the Mishkan, Mishkan Ha'edut. The Torah is eternal. The temples were not eternal. First temple was destroyed after 410 years. Second temple was destroyed after 420 years. But the Torah remains forever. What's the status of the Mishkan? Is it eternal or is it also temporary? How many years the Mishkan served us? Remember, the Mishkan is a portable temple, house of God. Let me give you some idea. The first temple, as I say, 410. Second one, 420. Between them, there was seven years break. Seven years. The Mishkan, 
was with them after they came out of Mitzrayim, right? One year after. In the year 480, 480 years after they came out of Egypt, King Solomon started to build the first temple. Where was it? Jerusalem, by the western wall up there. Where do we see the source for it? Kings A, chapter 6, verse 1. That's the source. This was the fourth year to his kingdom. What age he became a king? Twelve. Meaning when he was 16, he started to build a house for God. But this one, permanent house. Seven years he took to build it. There was no Home Depot yet. No drills. None of the things we have today. With thousands of workers today, maybe it would take a year or two. Seven years it took. They finished when he was 11 years a king. So 12 plus 11, he was 23 years old. 23 years old, almost a teenager. When the temple was standing. The Mishkan was created... One year, the first year after we came out of Egypt, meaning a year after, we came out in Nisan, 15 of Nisan, right? 14 at night, 15, Lela Seder. The following year in Nisan, but in the first day of Nisan. So one year minus 15 days. Okay? 350 days later. The grand opening of the Mishkan. How long the Mishkan existed? The Gemara does the calculation. When the temple was built, Oil Moed, the tent of the Mishkan, was buried under the first temple that King Solomon did. He took the Mishkan, fold everything, and bury it when? Under the western wall over there. If you take the mask and blow it up, and dig very deep in the ground, eventually you will find that Mishkan, right under everything. How many years they used the Mishkan, who knows? 486 years. 486 years, why? 40 years, 39 years in the desert, right? Then they enter Israel. And King Solomon, we just said, that he started to build the Mishkan 480 years after we came out of Egypt, minus 40. So 440, 441 years after they enter Israel, right? And that's the case. You do the, the math, it's very simple. The Mishkan was more than the first temple and more than the second temple. 486 years. And it was buried under the temple. So it's eternal. It was never destroyed. It still exists. It still exists. Shlomo HaMelech Ganazoto under the temple. That was the only place you can put it. Where else would you throw it? You're going to put it in a box of Gniza in a shul? You need to find a place that no one will walk over it. 
So where did they put it? In a place that is just as holy. The Bet HaMikdash. So, the Malbim said, the Malbim said that if there would be Khalila, one thing not kosher, then Hashem will not agree to come into the temple, to bring his Shekhinah into the temple, because Hashem hates gezel. He hates stealing. Moshe, the Khatam Sofer say, according to the Halakha, Moshe did not have to give them a report. Did not. Why? Because Chazal say, when you put someone in charge of the money in a public, in a community, you have to put two people. Now one can check the other around. He's afraid of him and he's afraid of him. Right? Unless as someone that everyone known as a righteous, honest person for many years. Everybody knows this person cannot touch a pen without permission. And is very, very honest, always pay on time. 20 years, 30 years, he has the best record. Never once in his life he was sued by anyone or anything like this. No one can ever claim, I gave him money and I never pay back. Or anything like that. I have a friend like this. I told him once, I know you never stole anything from anyone. And that you don't owe anything to anyone. And now one person is running after you. He smiled. How do you know that? I told him very simple. Every time I called your office in Manhattan, no matter which girl picked up the phone and I asked for you, not once they asked me, who are you? What is it in reference to? Does he know you? Does he expect your call? No, no investigation. Today when you call, you already have an FBI investigation. What did you say your name is? Can I take your number? Let me check if he's available. What is it in reference to? Does he expect a call from you? After she went through the whole investigation, she comes to him already with information. That person is running after you because your check bounced. I'm not here. You know how it works. Tell him I'll call him tomorrow. Tell him I'll get back to him. Yeah, sure, you will. But him? Nobody asks who it is and what's for. Right away they transfer the call. Then you know no one ran after him. No one. Because if he knew people ran after him for money or anything, he would not allow the secretaries to transfer any call anonymous to him. He's the one who asks, hi, who's calling? Why? I'm not running from anyone. If you reach such a level in your life, we have to assume that you clean. We have to assume you clean. Same thing, you know, when you speak in, this, in, in lectures. You speak against stealing, against borrowing and not paying back. If you yourself a crook, or you borrow and don't pay back, or you don't pay on time, what do you think is going to happen? The YouTube will be full of comments. You took from me and you never pay. I'm still waiting 20 years for you to pay me back for the money you took. Next time before you speak about this, maybe you should check yourself. You cannot run away. It's everything public today. If you have people you stole money from, you're never going to be able to talk about honesty. Because right away, they're going to hide it everywhere. The opposite, it will make your haters so angry. They will make sure now to, because they, they won't be able to stand your hypocrisy. You understand or no? 
That's why the Gemara said, Nae Doresh, Nae Mekayem. If you speak about something, make sure you keep it. <laughs> Otherwise, not only it won't help, you're going to get, you're going to turn into a big Chilul Hashem. Because people get so angry, they know you don't do it. And they're going to start attacking you, and all of a sudden the truth will come out. Better you be quiet. That's why it's not that easy. Because you have to speak about hundreds of topics, and you have to be perfect in everything. Because if you're not, what do you think is going to happen? Tomorrow morning, someone will come and make big noise. Same thing in the synagogue, the rabbi of the shul. If you borrow money from people and don't pay them back, I, I need 20,000, can you help me out? How long you need it, rabbi? Two months, I'll give it to you. By Purim, you'll have it back. It's already five Purims went. Now he comes to the stage and the guy sits over there with an angry face. What's the topic? Paying your loans on time. And who sits, this angry face with his mustache, ready to tear him apart? He will be afraid to talk. Why? He's going to say, excuse me, what are you giving speech about paying the loans back? You pay on time? <laughs> That'll be the end of it. Or even if you won't be such an azpanim to insult him in front of everyone, you know how the Yetzirah is. I can't believe he gives such speeches over here. Did he, did he forget that he borrowed from me and from him and from him and for that and he doesn't pay here and he doesn't pay there? Bottom line, Rabotai, it's not so simple. Just like a doctor who preached to his patient not to smoke and a minute later light a cigarette in the hallway. Is it going to help? You just give me half an hour speech about what the cigarettes did to my lung. And you light a cigarette a minute later in the hallway? What, you, what, is, what was this whole speech for? Can you give someone a speech? My father used to give me speeches when I was a kid about never to dare to smoke, and it worked. I never touched a cigarette in my life. My father smoked a lot and died from cigarette. Cigarette killed him. Without that, he could live an easy another 10 years. So how, how is it possible that a father that smoked preached to his boy not to dare to smoke, and it worked? Usually, if you yourself don't set a good example, if you're a liar and you try to teach your kids not to be liars, it's not going to work. They know you're lying all day. You have to first stop lying and then talk to them about you should not lie. Makes sense, no? The answer is my father did it in a very clever way. He kept showing me how much he suffered from being addicted to cigarettes. See how much I suffer? You see how stupid I am? Make sure you don't be stupid like me. Look how much I'm a slave of the cigarette. Now, one time there was a strike. There was no cigarettes all over Israel. No cigarettes on the store. Nobody, they don't sell cigarettes. Strike. I'll never forget, I walked with him for three hours. We circled the whole Batyam. Got to Hulon already. From one kiosk to the other, hoping to find one pack of cigarettes. Three hours, as a kid, my legs broke. And every step, he was telling me, learn, learn from me how not to be so stupid. You see? And I got so afraid of that. I said, you know what? When the friends in school told me, come on, be a man. Try one. Get out of here. One time, no. I don't touch it. Why? Because <laughs> my father already told me, remember, if you try it once, that will be your end. 
It's not going to be a second time. Don't ever dare. And worked. So it's obviously possible if you come and say, please don't be like me. I'm, I'm preaching not to myself. I also need improvement in that. Some speakers do that. They get on a stage and they give strong musar, especially before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So I'm speaking to myself. If it will also help to inspire you, very good. I'm not coming to tell you I'm perfect standing over here and all of you are not perfect standing over there. No, no. I came to give a speech to myself, but I'm going to do it loud because some other people have maybe the same issues. This way it can work. Because first of all, the people appreciate your honesty. You're honest. Everything is on the table. Did I say I'm perfect? I'm not perfect. Every speaker that speaks about Lashonara, how many of them never spoke Lashonara? One out of a thousand. People get angry, they say something. Oh, here, you. I saw you speaking Lashonara. What are you preaching about Lashonara? Hafez Chaim never spoke Lashonara. Okay, fine. <laughs> That's why his book is in every house in Israel. If he would be a type to speak Lashonara, you think Hashem is going to make him the master of Lashonara, Alachot? No. Why? Because he was perfect and Hashem made him the, the perfect example, deserved to spread the importance and the severity of Lashonara. Such a holy person. So, Rabotai, because Moshe, Rachatam Sofer said, because Moshe was known as a person that Hashem speaking to him, and Hashem doesn't speak to liars, and he doesn't speak to thieves and to crooks, therefore, he did not have to give them any report. Moshe could have said to them, you have a problem with me? You suspect me? Do you really think Hashem would speak to me if he knew I put some money in my pocket? What do you think? It would be the end of it. They couldn't do anything against him. But, because he was so humble, he said, don't worry, I already knew that some people speak against me behind my back. That's why everything is written. Come, please. Public information, check. Do you think it helped? I found something else to talk about it. It was always something. Next thing is Korach, then they suspect him in Eshetish, all kinds of things that no one would ever imagine such thing. Why? When you have clowns and the clowns are jealous with you, they'll find what to make up. Remember this. So not always you're going to have to be the cause of them speaking. Sometimes you do something wrong and they blow it a hundred times worse. Sometimes you did nothing. But they still come to you. Next question. Oh, so the question we didn't answer is, are you allowed to suspect someone in your heart as long as you don't say it loud? Or that's also a sin? What it says that if you suspect a kosher person, you're going to get injured in your body or damaged. Is it only when you spoke against him loud to people or even when you suspected him in your heart? He's probably the thief. This guy, I don't like him. He looks very, he looks nervous to me. Probably him. He went to the bathroom, probably went to the room. If I would have to try the first one, I would check in his pocket. You're just thinking. In that case, you also broke the law or no? What do you think? Now, don't tell me you don't know, because it happens to you every day. How can you not know? So the answer is, 
there's no doubt if this person known as a thief, he already have record that he was convicted in bed din, stealing from here, stealing from there, that if there was a theft in the house and he was there, that he would be the, the first suspect. You must suspect him. Why? Because he has a chazaka of ganav. He has a status of a thief. Okay? If you go to the bathroom, the light was off, and now he's on. And everyone in the house is known as Shomrei Shabbat, except one. You are allowed to think that the person as Mechalel Shabbat is the one who turned the light on this chatzuf. With no shame. Or because he's used to it. He does it everywhere. He, he did it here also. Or shut the light, or turn the light on. Absolutely. But if everyone is in a house Shomrei Shabbat, you now have to think, I wonder who is the one who turned the light on. This one looked to me the most modern one. It's probably him. Allowed or not allowed? Knowing it is Shomer Shabbat. That's Rav Chaim Kanievsky, this question. Rav Chaim Kanievsky said, even in the heart, you're not allowed to suspect, suspect someone. However, it, uh, you allowed that it will create a doubt in your mind. Meaning, I do not know it's him. I won't put money it's him. But next time, if he asks me for money, this guy, I'm allowed not to give it to him. Why? Because he was with me in the apartment and, and, uh, and money disappeared from the room and it was only me and him and I know I didn't take it. So it could be it was him or maybe it was stolen the day before by someone else. I don't know, there's a doubt here. Because it created a doubt, I'm allowed not to give him money or, but not allowed never to speak to someone, be careful for me because I don't have any proof. And I'm not allowed to convince myself for sure that's the guy. No. But... If there will be a situation where we have to make a decision about his honesty, I will allow to hold that as a doubt. Do you understand what I say or no? Okay, let's move on. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma, page 23, the Gemara is speaking about revenge. The Torah says, Lo tikum velo titor. You're not allowed to have revenge against your friend. What kind of revenge we are talking about? Let's see what the Gemara says. Please lend me a tool. A cutter that cut the wheat, Magal its name. It's, it's round with a handle that they used to cut the wheat like that. He said, no, I cannot lend you. The next day, he comes to him and says, can I borrow your magal, your cutter? He said, I'm not giving it to you because you didn't give it to me yesterday. Why should I give it to you today? That's a scene from the Torah. That's a sin from the Torah, and Allah to have revenge against him. He didn't give it to you, doesn't mean you have to be like him. You have an opportunity to do chesed, do it. We have to ask, 
The Gemara used an example of tomorrow he comes and asks for it. What happened if he came today? You came to him today, ask him for the, for the Magal. He said, no. And an hour later he came. So can you lend me yours? According to the Gemara, it's written, Lemachar, if he comes in the future, you're not allowed to remind him, I'm not giving it to you because you didn't give me. But if he comes a few hours later, would you be able to, to tell him that? Tomorrow I'm not allowed. But who's to say today I'm not allowed? Today, maybe today I'm allowed. Let me ask you a question. Is this a logical question or no? What would be the difference, to begin with? Why would we think that there is any difference if he comes four hours later today or he comes ten hours later, which is already tomorrow? What could be a difference? Who knows? That there is such a question. Because if somebody asks such a question, someone who knows a lot of Torah, if he asks such a, such a question, that means there has to be at least one reason that today will be different than tomorrow. You understand what I'm saying here? Otherwise, he would not ask such a question. And the answer would be clear. No difference. Whenever he comes again, you have to give it to him. By the way, there is such a thing that called noter, not nokem. It's almost the same, with one difference. You give it to him, but you tell him, you see, I'm not like you. Yesterday, when I wanted you to give me, you didn't agree. But I'm not like you. Here, take. That's also a sin from the Torah. Even though you gave, because you reminded him that he didn't give you, I'm not like you, here I'm giving it to you. That's called noter. Noter means you keep what happened in your mind against him. So the question is, what would be the difference between today and tomorrow? Who knows? When you go to sleep, what do you do before you go to sleep? Huh? One of the things we do is we forgive people in the night and in the morning. What do you say in the morning? I forgive every person. So overnight, you're supposed to already forgive the person. So that's why after you say that you forgive, why you remind him the next day or you don't want to give him. You just forgive. But now there was no overnight, so I didn't forgive you yet. If I didn't forgive you, maybe, I'm not, maybe I can remind you. You know how these people on Yom Kippur, they say, I forgive everyone who did this to me and this and that, intentionally, not intentionally, and then 20 years after they still hate you. One person in, in Shul on Yom Kippur stepped on someone's foot. That person screamed, I! Pushed him. Watch where you walk. What's wrong with you? You don't see. Ay, ay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Ah, okay, don't be sorry. Go, go. So Rav Ben Zion came to him. Said to him, you know, you just lied to Hashem on Yom Kippur. He said, I lied to Hashem on Yom Kippur? He said, yes. I just witnessed it. Five minutes ago you say, Areani. I'm sand on the ground. I'm ashes. I'm nothing. Who am I? I'm nothing when I'm alive. Needless to say, I'm nothing when I'll die. 
I'm only counting on your mercy. Those, these, those are the words of the vidui. And this person just stepped on your foot. And you scream and you get angry and you want to kill him. If you were sand, sand doesn't make such a noise when you step over it. <laughs> Meaning, time to put your ego down. You're coming on Yom Kippur and on Yom Kippur you have time to fight with someone because he stepped on your leg, on your foot. So the answer is, even in the same day, you're not allowed to have nekama, revenge, or netira. Not only the next day, not necessarily the next day. It's a form of speech. Meaning, even, lay, even an hour later, you're not allowed to tell him, you didn't give me, so I'm not giving you. When you have a time to do an act of kindness to one person, Reuven and Shimon, is it better to do chesed to someone who did chesed to you as gratefulness, an act of gratefulness? Or it's better to do it to the other person that you don't owe him anything? That's a greater sacrifice. If you do to someone you like, he does a lot of favors to you, and you want to pay back a favor, it's kind of like paying for the, for, for the falafel you buy. Why did you pay? I have to pay, ma. I'm not going to take it for free. One time he gives me, now I'm giving him. Oh, you know what? This guy, I don't know him anything. Dafka, I'm going to do it for him. Kindness for the sake of heaven. Now you understand that this is a very problematic question. Very problematic question. Why is it a problematic question? This is like they say in America, catch 22. Whatever you say, it's going to be bad. If you say you have to do chesed to the one who do, you don't owe him anything because that shows that you do it for the sake of heaven, then the question will be, look at you, you're so ungrateful. Why don't you do to people who care about you and do for you instead of to do to strangers? If you do to the one who did favors to you and you now want to pay back, they say, ah, that's not chesed. That's an obligation. You're embarrassed why he did so many favors to you. Now you have to, it's time for you to do something for him. So that's a catch-22. Which one of the two is true? What do you think? The character of Chaim Kanievsky, his answer, Ayen Baba Metzia, page 32. I know everything in his mind. Every page, every line. Go to the Gemara, this page, you're going to find the answer to your question. The Gemara say, Oev lifrok vesone liton. What's easier, to take off the weight from the back of an animal or to carry from the, from the floor and put it on the back of the animal? What's harder, to make things fall down from the weight of the, from the back of the donkey, bring it down, or pick it up and put it on the top of the donkey. Obviously, to pick it up from the floor, it's much harder than to bring it down, right? Because you go against gravity. So, the Gemara say, when you have an opportunity to help your friend to, with his donkey weight on his back, or to your enemies, what did the Torah say? Who should you help? 
to your enemy. Chamor sonecha, the donkey of your enemy. Needless to say, the donkey of your lover. Even the donkey of your enemy. Did the Torah mean that you have to help the donkey of your enemy, Dafka, on purpose him? Or him, and needless to say, someone that is your friend? <laughs> That's a question. So the first understanding is, it's good to benefit even with your enemy. Why? Because it will educate you to fight your Yetzirah. Because you do it against your will. With your friend, you enjoy to do it. Enjoy to do something to someone you love. Someone you hate, you don't want to do anything for them. If you force yourself to help someone you hate, you deserve a much bigger reward. Right? So based on that, we would think, maybe it's greater to do a favor to someone that you don't owe a favor than to someone who did a favor to you. Because you're doing it for the sake of, of heaven and you're fighting your evil inclination. But we still have a doubt. Because maybe now you are taking revenge against him. Why you take revenge against your enemy? What is the hardest thing to punish your enemy? King Solomon say, feed him bread and give him water. Do not say to him, I'm not giving you food and I'm not giving you water. That's not a punishment. That's actually a relief for him. Good. He's my enemy. I don't want, any, I don't want from him. If your enemy comes and you speak against him and you hurt him and you try to damage his business and he runs quickly to give you food when you're hungry and water, come, let me take care of you. That's the biggest suffering. Why? Because the most painful suffering to a human being is shame. Shame. When someone that you do better or speak against him, Lashonara, and he runs to, to speak nicely about you, and he just ran and took care of you and gave you food, or who, who knows what? You can look at yourself after that. Your conscience kill you. You feel terrible about all the previous Lashonara and all the damages you did to him. You have no life. Imagine if you really caused him a damage. Wow, imagine one day he's going to find out what I did to him. And he runs and gives me and helps me. Wow, how can I live with myself? That's the problem here. So that's actually, when you come to do it to your enemy, maybe you take revenge against him. Because by giving it to him, you make him feel so horrible and you feel great about it. Look at him. He can't look at me in the eyes. I got him back. That's also a way to look at it. It gets more complicated by the minute. So what's the conclusion? I read it to you. King Solomon, Mishlei, Proverbs 25, verse 21, 22. Remember, Mishlei, Chafei. Go check the chapter there. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Go feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water. Why? It will be equal to throwing 
boiling charcoals on his head. Imagine you take from the grill those pieces of wood that are burning and throw it on someone's head. Ah, begin to scream. That's what you're doing to him. He's going to be boiling from the shame. That the person that he, he hurt the most is the one who wants to help him right now. Ve'ashem yashalem lecha. And Hashem is already going to give you for that. The Malbim say, if you want to take revenge against your enemy, right, the revenge is not to prevent him from having food and water. The opposite. The more you do good with him, the more he suffers. It's like throwing burning wood on his head. Right? Shame. Yavosh v'ikalem. He will be so ashamed that he has to take from you bread and thanks to you to, be, to survive, right? And what does it mean And Hashem will pay you? Pay you good or will punish you for giving him bread? If you say that it's revenge, you're supposed to be punished. The Torah says, don't take revenge. If you did a mitzvah of, of chesed, giving him food, then you have to get a reward. The answer is, you're going to get the reward for doing the right thing. The fact that he's going to be ashamed, that's already his problem, not mine. I did what the Torah say. Somebody's hungry, feed him. Even your enemy. Conclusion. Better to do it for the person that you don't owe him anything. What about the person you owe him? Also do for him. There's no contradiction. Once you have now an opportunity to do to two people, what comes first? Let me do first for this person for the sake of heaven. And right away I'm also going to do it to this person. Why? Because to him I owe him. So it's an obligation. Now I want to ask you a question. When do you feel a bigger resistance? When you owe someone, someone something or when you don't owe him anything? If you have to do a favor to someone, so someone asks you to give tzedakah to this person. This person did favors to you in the back, so you feel guilty if you're not going to give him. Or he, didn't know, he did not do anything, you barely know him. When do you feel a bigger resistance? Try to imagine now. You have someone, a friend that needs help. You want to give him a check or someone that you don't know him. He's also poor. He needs help. When do you feel you have bigger resistance? The answer is depend who you are. If your nature is grateful, then the more the person does for you, the easier it is for you to pay back. If your nature is ungrateful, like most people in the world, then the more you owe him, the more you have the urge to stab him in the back. That's why they, they told the story, I think, about the Chafetz Chaim or the Gaon Mivilna, one of them. That they say one person does not stop talking against you in town, Rabbi. And the Rabbi say, very strange. I don't remember doing any special favor to that person. Meaning, if I did favors to him, I understand why he's trying to bury me. <laughs> Right? Because when you are ungrateful, the Satan knows your weakness. 
So the Satan will always make you fail and trap in your weaknesses. And that's one of them. You are ungrateful. But the Satan never settled for a small sin. So he will try to get you the worst ungratefulness sin. Not a small one. So I'll give you once in a while a glass of water and you don't care to give him back. No. Someone you owe him your life. And he not only doesn't acknowledge you and appreciate you and thank you every day. When people speak about you, he's the first one to throw dirt on you. Yeah. It happened to me thousands of times with people that I made them bali tshuva. Thousands of times. The next thing I hear, oh, this guy spoke against you. I said, spoke against me? I picked him up like garbage from the street on Queens Boulevard, brought him to the yeshiva, gave him money every week, took care of him, brought him tefillin, made him what he is today, and now he speaks against you? Yeah, because there are so many people like this. The more you do for them, the more they try to hurt you. And sometimes it's because of jealousy. I know a woman that she's jealous with her sister-in-law. That woman is not rich, and the sister-in-law is rich. The sister-in-law has a very good art. So every time they have clothes or something, she wants to help her out to save the money. So she always gives them nice things, nice coats, these, I don't know, all kinds of things. She gets so angry when she gives it to her. Why? Because her jealousy kills her. I have to get from you, even sometimes it has the tag on it. Brand new! No one wore it. She gets angry. Instead of kissing her hand, every time she gets a shipment, she makes a fight with her. Until the husband of the rich woman told her, I forbid you to ever help her again. Why? Every time you help her, you're causing her to commit a horrible sin against Hashem. Her ungratefulness comes and explodes. She's going to be severely punished for that. Better not to give her. Why? She can control her jealousy and her, her ungratefulness. People like this, no mitzvah to help them. What is a bigger test in life? Being rich or being poor? What do you think? If you ask people, what would you prefer to be? Rich or poor? I doubt that for every thousand people, if you even have one that say poor. That's probably will be the ratio. And if someone will say poor, Immediately you make him an appointment with Dr. Eisenberg, the psychiatrist. Why? It's shoite. It's not normal. One time a guy gave me an idea. The question is, Rabota, what's better? To be miserably rich or miserably poor? Both ways you're miserable. You're miserable. You have a billion dollars, but you're miserable. Or you have a thousand dollars and you're miserable. Which one of the two you choose to be? Green is miserably rich. Red is miserably poor. 
So, obviously, when the question is asked, everybody immediately answer, miserably rich. Why? Because the first thing comes to their mind, miserable, okay, I'll be miserable, but at least I don't have to worry about the mortgage, and when I want to lease a new car, or if I want to pay for a wedding or bar mitzvah, I have the money, I write a check and finish with that, at least I don't have the headache. Makes sense, no? Who wants headache now? But the answer is, it's better to be miserably poor than miserably rich. But I want you to tell me why. Very good. Because when you're poor, you grow up, you're a teenager, you never made money yet. You go to school, you finish, you're starting your job, you barely make money first year. I remember my friend, I have a friend, he's a Cohen, he lives here in Queens. We came together to America, 1989. We were teenagers' friends. We used to go out together, things like this. We arrived to America, and I met him in Manhattan, randomly. Of course, nothing is random, it's from Hashem. What are you doing here? I moved here. I also moved here. Because the last few months before we moved here, we were not in touch. We went to the army. After the army, we already disconnected the contact in Israel. All of a sudden, I, I arrived here. A few days later, I found him. In New York State, 20 million people. So the first, he went to real estate, 1990. We arrived here September 1989. A few months later, it was already 1990. He started to work in real estate, Masada Realty, Jamaica Avenue. First year, he made $4,000. The entire year. He asked me, do you have an accountant for me? I said, yes, someone just gave me an accountant. The first year I do taxes. <laughs> Let me tell him to take care of your taxes as well. So we met together with the accountant, 19, end of 1990, well, beginning of 1991. <laughs> so I never forget the face of the, the accountant. He looked at his uh, paper and said, come on. You Israelis, you wanna cheat the whole world. There is a limit to how much you can cheat. What are you giving me this $4,000 <laughs> annual income? He said to him, that's exactly how much I made. And that was exactly how much he made. Not a penny more, not a penny less. He made two deals, and in each deal he made $2,000. That's how much you made back then. How much you think a house in Queens cost at that time? In Jamaica Avenue, 70,000, 80,000, 50,000. That's how much it was. 1990. He sold two houses the entire year and make $2,000 commission because he was working under someone. The accountant could not believe it. I said to him, listen, I know this guy. He's not the type to lie. He doesn't know how to lie. He's too honest. <laughs> if he tells you he made 4,000, that's how much he made. Baruch Hashem, after the, you know, a few more years later, he started to make some more decent salary. So anyway, so the question now, what's easier? Oh, so why it's, miser why it's better to be miserably poor? 
Because when you grow up as a poor person, you always have this dream. One day I'll make it. One day I'll be rich. And I'm going to get out of my misery. That hope motivates you to live life. To get up in the morning. To go. To do things. So as long as you stay poor, you always live for that goal. That finally I'm going to make the deal and get out of my misery. How horrible it would be when you finally close your deal and made $2 million. And a month later you found out you're just as miserable as before or more. Because the money did not bring you any happiness. We got you some convenience. That's just about it. I had another friend. He lived in Manhattan in 8888 Avenue. Remember that address. That was his address. You can't forget that. That's my friend 27, 28 years ago. He was a real estate broker, but rentals in Manhattan. Today he owned a big office in Manhattan for real estate. But back then he was just in Israel. He came here, started to work in real estate. Renting apartments. How much an apartment was in Upper East Side, Upper West Side? 1200 a month, 1100 a month. That was the rent. Not like today, five, six, seven, ten. You made commission. And real estate was so bad that the building will give one month free rent. Just bring customers. First month on us. <laughs> Everything the opposite of today. So every time I went to his building, there was one Puerto Rican uh, doorman, Sammy, Puerto Rican guy, short. You know the Puerto Rican, when they're happy, they know how to be happy. Oh, como esta, senor, that. No one looked at that Sammy. All the Americans in the building, snobs, called, hi, how are you doing? Where is my mail? He talks to them, they don't look at him. Except... The two Israeli guys, him and me. Como esta, Sami, how are you? Give us five. So he liked us. Every time we saw us, he got up. Oh, amigos. It paid off big time. My friend was working for a few years like a dog, barely making his expenses. One day he gets a call from Sami, the Puerto Rican dormer. In the meantime, he died from AIDS. So this Sami called him up. Ronan, what? Come quickly to the building. What happened? Something happened to my apartment? No, 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 come quickly. The owner of the building wants to sell the building and I told him that I know a great guy in real estate. Only should use him. Come quickly, he will give you the listing. He came quickly to the building. They the signed the, an exclusive. He found some Persian people, they bought the building, and he made $2.1 million commission. This is 27 years ago. 2.1 million back then was like 20 million today, with the amount of real estate you could buy. You could have bought like 20 houses back then with this money. And that's how he became extremely rich. Today, he brought hundreds of millions. Being nice to Sami the Puerto Rican paid off big time. Why? That's why the Torah is full of examples like this. 
always be the first one to say hello to every person, be nice to everyone, be friendly, don't be cold as eyes, give respect. Alphabet of manners. Why did he run out of his way to locate him? You know, back then there was no cell phone. There was beeper. The beeper start beeping. Ta 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 to Sami the doorman. Wow, who knows what happened? He got nervous. He goes to a payphone, put quarters. What happened, Sami? Everything okay? Come quick. That's how he got the deal. Without that, who knows? Maybe until today would rent apartments. That was a life-changing moment. So what is a bigger test? The bigger test, the Mesilat Yisharim says, every step in life, it's a test. You have to understand that. You're walking on the street, it's a test. What's the test? Where to go. What to look at. What to pay attention to. What are you thinking when you're walking? Hundreds of tests could be just by walking 10 minutes on the street. Should you go in red light? Not, you're in a rush. Maybe Chilul Hashem, they go in see with the keeper, going in red light, you know, crossing the sidewalk. Maybe you don't cross by the sidewalk, you cross in the other thing. Maybe you skip the fence to, you know, to cut. Maybe you walk on someone's grass. Could be hundreds of things. Even something so simple as walking in a street, you are being tested. Everything what you do, what you're not doing. Sometimes you walk in the street and text and bang into people. Oh, excuse me. I get angry. Some goimi are, you know, very pedantic. I get angry. You walk into an elevator. Someone is running. Hold it for him. No, he press close before he comes. Why? Maybe we'll wait another 10 seconds. That's Chilul Hashem every minute. The opposite, put your hand, let the goyim come in. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? Thank you for holding the door for us. It's a big thing. For free, you get a Kiddush Hashem. To get one Kiddush Hashem, it's worth to pay one billion dollar cash. No exaggeration. If you had a billion dollars, it's worth it for you to buy one act of Kiddush Hashem. That the goyim around you say, wow, this Jew is a, Jews are nice people. That's it. Thanks to you, he thought that. You give a guy two dollars in a gas station for filling up your gas tank. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Make sure we see you with a keeper. If you don't have a keeper, what did you do? No Kiddush Hashem, no nothing. He doesn't know who you are. So, walking in the street, it's a test. Learning in yeshiva, it's a test every second. You're learning serious, you look around, everyone walks to the door, you, ch you check who it is. Coffee, cigarettes, telephone call, this, in, out. You can see, it's a test. Test in your behaving. Test in your modesty. Test in your generosity every second. A person has a lot of money, when he comes to Shamaim, Hashem will show him 10 million tests that he had about generosity, and he failed almost all of them. Fail, 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 fail. Oh, made it. Gave a thousand dollar check. Fail, 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 fail. Oh, gave 500 dollars. Fail, 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 fail. 
500 fill, 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 $5,000 check. And then they see, look how much I gave you, and let's see how much you gave. I gave you 10 million opportunities to give tzedakah. And in the end, you gave only 100 times, or 1,000 times in seven years. 1,000 out of 10 million, what's the percentage? Your mark is not even one out of 100. By the way, that person who gave a hundred times or a thousand times the kind seven years, he walks around like he's a minimum Bill Gates. The answer is, when it comes to this, he may be completely off. So, the Mishnah Yisharim says in chapter one, everything in this world for good and for bad is test for the human being. Being poor is a test, being rich is a test. As King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 30, verse 9, I'm afraid that I will be wealthy, meaning fool, and then I will become heretic. I'll deny that it's from Hashem. I will think maybe it's my greatness in business. Maybe I'm really a sharp lawyer or a doctor or, or a salesman. Maybe it's my beauty that brought me all these deals. Maybe it's my sharp tongue. Maybe it's my education. There's a lot of things that the Satan will bring to you. Look, you invested so many years in medical school. You became such a sharp, great doctor. Thanks to that, you're making a million dollars a month. That's what you think. It's baloney. Baloney. And what happened if you chose not to go to medical school? You had to make a million dollars a month. That's your test. How would you make it? Sell diamonds. How would you make it? Sell antique Persian rugs. $500,000 a rug. How would you make it? In bitcoins. How would you make it? Buy Google when they came out in 80, and a few years later there was a thousand. Here you go. You make you 12 times your money. A lot of people make fortune. Non-stop. I told you once when I was in Israel, these two young guys. Rabbi, it's Richard Mill. He paid 270000 He's a 29 years old boy. Besides the Tesla that he has, expensive in Israel, very expensive, 200 and something thousand dollars car. He made it. He's paying for a watch $270,000 in Israel. Not here in Manhattan, in Israel. Meaning he make millions. Hashem wanted him to make millions. He directed him to crypto. By the way, a lot of people wiped out in crypto. <laughs> they bought Bitcoin in 60,000 thinking it's going to be 100 and it went down to 20 or 30. They lost all the money. In reality, no matter how much you think you know, stock market in the end is a casino. It's true, you can learn about the companies. I remember, I have a student, he came to me and said, you don't understand, I have a cousin, he's a genius in Israel, Chabadnik. You have to see what the brain he has. He knows every company, he checked their financial statements, he knows every move, he knows how many stocks are out. And it's not a lie. The guy was a genius in finance. 
And he said, buy Neo. Neo has 40 something dollars. Buy Neo. Neo is the competition of Tesla, some <laughs> Chinese electric car. It was 40 something that it will go out by the end of the year to over 100. It makes a lot of sense. Supposedly, the car is even nicer than Tesla. Why wouldn't they sell millions of cars, Neo? I don't know. It went down to 20. 17. Here you go. So you would lose two thirds of your money. What happened to your cousin genius? I asked him. Started to mumble a week ago. What happened? Genius, genius. And I'm not asking if he's a genius or not. He could be a genius. Just because you are a genius, you're going to lose. I had a Georgian stock broker here once in Queens. He moved to Israel. He told me something that that's already exactly what the Torah said. He said, you know, I want to tell you something. Remember when the stock market crashed? What year was that? 19-something. 1980? No, no, it was later than that. There was a big crash. Huh? 2008, it was the big mortgage crisis and all the banks falling. Anyway, I think maybe it was 2008. So you know what he told me? He told me a few months before, we did not make a penny the expert, the real genius in the stock market. We did not make money. Do you know who made a year before tons of money, millions? Only the dumb people. Because the dumb people saw that the market keeps going higher and higher and higher every day. No matter what you buy, a few days it goes 10% up, 5% up, 10% up. So they keep buying, buying. And they already, you know, for sure it's going to go up. And they kept buying. And we knew that the Collapse can come any day. It's going to crash in a week. Half of it will go down. So we were afraid to buy. So we were holding the money, waiting. When is the crash going to be that we can buy? But it didn't come. So they made and made and another million and another million. When the crash came, they got wiped out. But some of them were smart. They knew there's going to be a crash. They dumb. They keep buying. But the money they made, they bought real estate. Back then, buildings were very cheap. They bought a lot of things, houses, buildings, this. The market crashed, but they thought, it's okay, they already have 10 buildings. <laughs> we, the experts, did not make anything. Who made money? Only those who do not know anything about stock market and about companies and about how it goes up and then it crashed. Keep buying. Why? Because when Hashem wanted to make, you make. You don't have to be a genius for that. So the question, Rabotai, is King Solomon wrote, If I'm going to be wealthy and full, I will deny that it's all from Hashem. I will say, Mi Hashem, who is God? I'm afraid that I'm going to be too rich and I will deny that it's all from Hashem. Like happened to 99% of the wealthy people in the world. It's a famous phenomenon. Especially all these atheists, all these secular people, many of the goyim. How did you become so rich? It's all from God. Ah, God. They get angry. 
It's all thanks to my education. What happens if I'll be too poor? I may steal. Why, every poor person has to be a thief? Naturally, no. But what happens if you have 10 kids at home and they freeze? And they shake and they cry and the baby scream and they cannot, you didn't bring them two days already food? You can't take the pain. So you're still with a broken heart. You go to a place and you steal bread. You steal, I don't know. In Israel now, the situation is terrible. I saw a show that they showed that people steal diapers and bread. Who goes to steal a loaf of bread? Even for that, they don't have money. And they don't have money for diapers. What are you, you going to do? The baby, you know, did what he did. He need diapers and you don't have money. What are you going to do? It's a big test. One option is to go to someone rich, knock on the door, excuse me, I'm very poor. Baruch Hashem, you have a nice home and a nice car in the driveway. Would you give me 200 shekels I can buy diapers and bread for my thing? Or maybe you can call the supermarket and ask them to give me bread and diapers? Most people would right away agree to give you. But that's a big shame. You can't live with the shame. So, what's worse, to live with the shame or to live with the conscience guilt. Some people will tell you this, some people will tell you that. So King Solomon say, if I'll be too poor, and I won't have enough money for the basic things, God forbid I become a thief. So now it's not clear, based on this verse, what's worse. If you be too rich, you're going to become a heretic, infidel. If you be too poor, you become a thief. What's worse? Heretic? Or a thief? That's really what it comes down to. What's worse? Which one gets a bigger punishment? Kofer? Someone who denies Hashem? Ungrateful to Hashem? He gets from Hashem and never say thank you? Or someone that didn't have what to eat and he went and stole? What do you think is worse? Huh? Kofer is much worse. Kofer is much worse. So what's the best way to do to be is average, paying the bills. Average. Mortgage, I'm able to pay. Car, able to pay insurance, yeshivot, whatever you need to survive. Nothing fancy, nothing poor. Average. What's average in America today? Depend if you're Jewish or not. For the goyim is half. They don't need yeshivot, they don't have private schools. They send to public. So they don't have that much expenses. Also the area where they live usually is half a price when the area where the, the religious Jews live. It's always going to be double. And the food is double. So basically everything is double or triple being a Jew. So if United States think that if you make less than $30,000 for a family you consider poor, by a Jewish family, it would have to be at least double or triple. You know, meaning if you're going to make 80, you're still poor. It's not enough to pay for your needs. Forget about vacation, forget about anything fancy or restaurants or, or nice expensive jewelry. There's nothing to talk about. So what's average? Depends on how many kids you have. Between 100 to 200,000 a year. That's average. Meaning paying your bills, paying all the yeshivot paying all the house, paying the expenses, about 20000 a month just to survive. 
So now it's even more because of the inflation. Everything went up 40, 50 percent. I don't know what's going to be. A lot of people now, and I told you the crime now is on a serious rise. Robberies every minute. Here, there, Queens, Bukharian guys get robbed. They come to their house. People wait for them with a gun. Make sure you don't walk with any expensive watch, not too much cash on you. And please do me a favor. Right now, everyone who listens to it, put all your credit cards on the table. Take a picture of all of them with the telephone number of the bank that when you get robbed, God forbid, you're not going to know where to call. You're going to have to call Amex and Chase and this bank and the ATM. You're going to have a lot of phone calls to say immediately to cancel the credit card. Because if you don't act quickly by tomorrow, who knows, um, it can be hundreds of thousands of dollars charges on your card. So you have to have everything ready. That in case that you, God forbid, got robbed, you know right away where to call. And to cancel everything that was stolen. And a lot of people, the panic is not only what they stole from them, the credit cards, you can get new ones. They are worried by the time I get a new one, what kind of a damage they're going to do, right? So time is running out. That's the last thing for today. So the, the test, Rav Chaim Kanievsky answered, the, the hardest test is Ashirut. And I explained to you why. Because first of all, most rich people, they don't give enough charity and they're going to be held guilty for that big time. And second, it caused them to be proud, to look down at other people who are not so successful. That's why you have so many exclusive VIP clubs in every country, in a marina, and over here, and in business class, they have a special club just for the rich people that the poor won't disturb them. You don't want to let the poor also go to the Delta Club or to the United Airlines. It's only for members, you know, people who pay 4000 a ticket. Why is it? Because we are not feeling comfortable being around ordinary people. We want everything to be special. That's why they make private neighborhoods in Florida, gated neighborhoods with the guards and security. And they have membership fee. It's very high application fee that the poor people cannot even dream to buy a house there because who's going to pay $75,000 non-refundable application fee just to see if the board will approve you? Same thing in Manhattan and other places. Why? Because King Solomon already told you that symptom. The greater you become, the more you confuse that maybe you became a second god. But in reality, you should be more humble because everything you have, you should feel guilty. That's not thanks to me. I don't know why Hashem gave me. Uh, I mean, besides thanking him every minute and try to do the right thing with the money and invest and save souls and invest in all these things. You know, I, I'm thinking to myself, there's two guys in Israel. I told you about that. Three weeks ago, my film about Shabbat in Hebrew came out. They work on a film a few weeks to gather all the things, to cut them, put them together, make music, pictures. And then they paid a few thousand dollars to promote it. Facebook, YouTube, all these channels, social media, a few thousand dollars. The film in three weeks already went up. Yesterday was a 315,000 views. 
315,000 people in Israel watch the full film. It's almost an hour. Now it's Shabbat. Do you know how powerful this film, everything you heard me saying about Shabbat that shook the people up, it's all in that film. They make it a real hardcore film. So my quick estimation is that this couple, maximum the whole thing cost them with the equipment, maybe nine, ten thousand $10,000. That's it. Nothing. They already made, with their, with their investment, thousands of new Shomrei Shabbat, for sure. There's no question about it. Thousands for sure. If you say even one out of a hundred is already thousands. You know, and this film does not, you cannot, you cannot be Michalil Shabbat after that. You feel horrible. It's horrible. You feel terrible to watch it and to be Michalil Shabbat. So imagine what a great investment. You make a film like this, you promote it in the right channels, you keep paying every day, you know, another 500, another 500, another. Because if you don't pay, it's going to go to 30,000 people. If you pay, it went to almost 400,000 people by now. It's worth it. And he said to me, there's 800 comments that people say that they didn't know what Shabbat is. They, they bother to write that they're going to they're gonna start being Shomer Shabbat. And I don't have to tell you that once a person becomes Shomer Shabbat, he begins to come to shul, and he listens to the speeches of the rabbi, begins to meet religious people. His own life changed. He starts, come, come to shiurim every day. We have classes, this, that, and that's it. A month or two later, you don't recognize him anymore. Here you go. There are billionaires. They could have done that with a hundred films. Life after the Torah and science, purpose of life, Shabbat, importance of kosher food. Each one of them would go to every Hebrew speaker and every Jewish English speaker and even Goim. What did you lose? A million dollars after a few years. You have billions, you have hundreds of millions, you fool. Why are you going to take it with you to the grave? You could have saved thousands of... You, you come to the next world, you, they put you in the highest level. Imagine this, for eternity you're going to be next to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, to Rabbi to the people that, thanks to them, we're alive today. They're going to say, who is this guy? Who is this? Persian, Bukhari, Ashkenazi, Syrian. Who is this guy? What is he doing here, Bichlal? Look at him. Look at him. Does he even know how to read Gemara? Barely. So what is he doing here? Come, let's, let's show you what he did. They show you 50,000 Shomrei Shabbat. I'm not going to believe it. Wow. How did you get so lucky? Shem gave me money. <laughs> I invested it correctly. That's all. Ah, but 99% of the other people didn't do it. 99.99%. They didn't do it. So when people ask you, is it good to be rich? The answer is absolutely, in one condition, that you invest the money spiritually correctly. If not, better not to have money, to be ordinary person. Many people keep telling me, believe me, when I'll be rich, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to give 80%. Maybe they mean it. But most likely, when they become rich, you're going to see how they disappeared, and you don't hear from them anymore. And Why? Because now when it became an obligation, the Satan came and 
choke them from the throat. When they didn't have, they didn't have Yetzirah. So they cannot believe how the rich people don't give. When you're going to be rich, you're going to feel what they feel. How the Satan fight them to the end. So, like I said, is to be rich, Rav Chaim Kanievsky ruled, it's much harder test than to be a poor person. Because a poor person, even though he has desire to maybe go and steal, in the end he would rather collect charity. Come to the rabbi of the shul, rabbi help me out. We don't have what to eat in the house. We didn't pay electric, they shut the electric, we freeze. Immediately they're going to make an announcement in the shul, everyone put some money in the envelope, he has a thousand, two thousand dollars, he survived another two weeks. And two weeks later, he's going to do the same thing and the same thing. There's a lot of people come to collect. Uh, you know, you, you see in Purim, you're going to see how many people come from Israel. Just for that. Why? Matanot le'evionim. It's mitzvah to give money to the poor people that should also be, uh, should be happy. Now we have a famous thing, if you speak Lashonara about another person, all your merits goes to him. All your mitzvot, all the rewards goes to this person. What happens if you regret it and you did tshuva? You apologize to him, I'm sorry, I spoke Lashonara about you, forgive me. Okay, I forgive you. Do you get back or what you lost, you lost? Why am I asking this? Let's say if a person did something horrible and Hashem decided to give him a horrible punishment and he had an accident and he lost a leg. An accident. And now he regrets the sin that he committed and he did full tshuva for it. Will Hashem grow back his leg or no? Probably not. Huh? Did you ever see someone grow a leg that he lost? Or, or a hand that he lost, or even a finger? Probably not. In that case, we can say that tshuva, tshuva. Maybe you get rid of the punishment in the next world, but what you got, you got already. That's it. Or the question is, it's a conditional punishment. As long as you didn't do tshuva, we suspend your mitzvot. Like the bank freeze your bank account if you're Russian. Can't even use PayPal. Every Russian citizen now suffer hell. Hell. Can't wire, cannot do anything, cannot order on Amazon, cannot order from America, cannot do anything. Nothing. They close on them from every direction. Soon they're going to put a ban on their oil. They're not so worried because they have China, Iran, China, this, the evil countries, they're all together. But the Russian citizen, the, you don't understand what happened. There's a lot of Russian oligarchs that have billions of dollars. They froze all their money. They, froze their, they, start, they rush now to sell everything for half a price before they freeze their assets. They sell Mamash, 15 billion, take it for seven. Give three billion, take it for two. Just let's do it quick before I find out that my account is frozen. Some of those Russian oligarchs, they are Jewish and they have Israeli citizenship, like Roman Abramovitz. The president of uh, Ukraine, I'm not so sure he's Jewish. It's very possible his mother is a Goyabchla. Just because his father was a Jew, in Russia almost everyone, his mother is not Jewish. 
He married to Goya, so his kids are Goyim. But maybe he himself is not a Jew. Just because his last name is Cohen or Zelensko, whatever his name is, Zelensky, doesn't mean he's Jewish. Your name can be Levinsky and Weiss and Cohen and Levy and whatever it is, and he's still not Jewish. Remember, we spoke about him hundreds of times over the years. So, the question is now, if you finally did tshuva, do you get back the mitzvot or no? What do you think? Don't answer from your emotions. Answer from your logic. What do you say, Benji? He gets back or no? Huh? Who knows where is the source that if you speak Lashonara about another person, you lose your mitzvot? Where is the source? Maybe someone made it up to scare people. Huh? The answer is, the source is Chovot HaLevavot, was written almost a thousand years ago. Rabbeinu Bechaye, Sha'ar Akniya, the chapter of surrendering, which is chapter seven, right? He writes that someone that speaks Lashon HaRa about another person, that this merit of that person goes to the one he spoke Lashon HaRa about. Right? By the way, what happens if this person is Mechalel Shabbat? Huh? If the person is a non-Jew and you spoke Lashon HaRa about him, do you lose your mitzvot to the non-Jew? He gets all the Torah you learn, all the mitzvot you did, all the tzedakah you then went to Ahmed? The answer is no. No doubt about it? No. Why? How do we know? Who told you you're allowed to speak about an anjul Lashonara? The answer is everybody understands it's not a good thing to do. Question is, do we have a source that is not allowed? The answer is in the Torah, it says, Lo telech rachil be'amecha. It's a clear verse in the Torah. Do not speak gossip about your nation. Meaning other nations, there's no restriction. Why I still say it's not a good thing to do? Because once you're speaking about the Arabs and about the Nazis and about this and about that, you're going to get used to it. It becomes your nature. You constantly speak bad about all these things and then you get used to speak about the tzaddikim in the end. Better to try to keep your mouth shut. What happens if it's a Mechalel Shabbat? Are you allowed to speak Lashon Arabanim or no? The answer is yes. Why? He's a Jew, no? The answer, no, he's not. He doesn't count like a Jew in Halakha. It's written in Gemara, in Shulchan Aruch, in Rambam. Mechalel Shabbat, Areu, Kegoy, Lechol Davar. It's 100% like a non-Jew. He doesn't count Be'amecha. He excluded himself from the Jewish nation by not keeping the covenant with God, which is Shabbat. What makes you Jewish? Two things, Jewish mother and Shabbat. One of the two you don't have, you're not a Jew. Your mother is not Jewish and you keep Shabbat, you're not a Jew. Your mother is Jewish but you don't keep Shabbat, you're not a Jew. Your mother is Jewish and you keep Shabbat, you're a Jew. You need two things, remember this. Don't be fooled by any modern university speaker on YouTube that tell you otherwise they are lying. They are deceiving. They modifying the Torah and the Shulchan Aruch. It's written seven times in Shulchan Aruch. Mechalel Shabbat is 100% like an anjou. 
So all the things that it says, Lo tisna et achicha bilvavcha, do not hate your brother in your heart. Achicha meaning someone that keeps mitzvot like you. Ve'avta l'reacha kamocha, reacha l'mitzvot, someone that keeps mitzvot like you, you have to love him. Anyone else, you don't have mitzvah to love them, and like I showed you before, first sentence today, mitzvah to hate the reshaim, be'avod reshaim rina, and everybody will say otherwise, modify the Torah. I'm telling you that. So what happened over here? If you spoke about Rasha, someone that excluded himself from the Jewish nation, your mitzvot did not go to him. But what happened if you speak about a kosher Jew? Keep Shabbat. He got you angry and he spoke Lashon about him. You told the whole world that he's smelly, that he's stingy, that he's not a nice father. What is their business to know? Somebody come and ask you, can I marry my daughter to this guy? Ah, that's a different story. He has an obligation to save his, <laughs> his daughter. If she's going to fall into the hand of this monster, now it's mitzvah to save him. This is what he does, this and this and that. You should consider it. But if there's no question now, what do you run and uh, generate information negative against a person? Especially if Shomer Shabbat, all your mitzvot goes to him. Okay, so now you realize it. You went to him. I'm so sorry. The other day I said something I shouldn't say about you. Forgive me. And he's a nice guy. I forgive you. Did you get back your mitzvot? That's the last question for today. Should I tell the answer or should I keep them waiting for next week? The answer is... Once he does tshuva, he gets back all the mitzvot. Good news. Imagine if not, you, you live 40 years, you deal you mil, billions of mitzvot, you say Lashon Ara about Shomer Shabbat, you got wiped out. You start another 20 years, another Lashon Ara about Shomer Shabbat, you got wiped out. Better not to live. If that wouldn't be the case, I wonder if it would pay off to keep mitzvot, because you know at one point, one day you're going to speak Lashon about someone that is kosher. And that's all it needs. One sentence, and you lose everything. The answer is you lose it conditionally. Conditionally. What happens if someone regrets the mitzvot he did, he became secular, went off the derech, and then changed his mind, and did tshuva again and went back after a year. Does he get back all the mitzvot that he lost? Meaning after he became Chalel Shabbat, it's written in the book of Yechezkel, Lo tizacharna lo kol tzitkotav. Beshuv atzadik mi tzitkuto. When a tzadik became wicked, all the mitzvot got wiped out. He lost all of it. Question is what happened if he did tshuva? So if he did tshuva, of course he's going to get it back. This is Hashem's motivation, is to give us reward for the mitzvot. That was the whole purpose of, of the mitzvot. Why should he take it from you if in the end you died righteous? So that's needless to say that you're going to get it back. The question is, what happened if he said in his mouth, I regret I kept the mitzvot? We know that if someone says, I regret I was religious, I regret I kept Shabbat, I regret I gave tzedakah, I regret I helped that person, you lose immediately the mitzvot. What happened if a month later you say, I don't regret, I was angry, I didn't really mean it, I'm happy now I gave it. You changed your mind. What happened in that case? 
Huh? You get it back or no? Why not? It's also tshuva. But if you say that and you died, you lost everything. A person can be 80 years righteous, one sentence before he died, he say, and he lose everything. Just like Shabbat in what way? You're right. You keep Shabbat all your life. The last Shabbat, you say, you know what? That's it. I had it. You broke Shabbat and you died. <laughs> you died in Chalel Shabbat. What could be dumber than that? I know one uh, Goya that converted. She was converted and she really had a hard life. Did not work for her in Shiduchim, Parnasa. It's mamash was hard for her. I, I can see from all the complainings that she did, she really was suffering for two, three years. What happened? In one moment, she kicked everything and she became now Goya again. There's only one problem. She goes out to bars, she fool around, she, go, she is Mechalelet Shabbat. She posts on Shabbat on her social media things. Someone who knew her sent me a screenshot. She said, how can it be? She posted it at 5 p.m. today, which is, was Shabbat. I don't understand. She's not Shomeret Shabbat anymore. When I saw that I don't see her anymore and I don't hear from her, every once in a while she called me to complain about her problems, I thought to myself two options. One is either she died or two, she became secular. I already know how it works. So I send her a message. I don't hear from you anymore. I hope you're okay. She answered after a few days. It took her a few days to answer. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I decided that I cannot deal with the religion anymore. And I decided I, I don't keep anything. So someone like that, unfortunately, is the dumbest person in a history. No one is dumber than this. Why? Because you were a Goya. You can break Shabbat, you can eat whatever you want, you can have boyfriends, can have relationship, can basically do 99% of what you want. The only thing you should not kill, you should not steal, and uh, do not be an idol worshiper, don't eat animals unless they're dead first, obey the police and the court, believe in one God. And no sex crimes with the closest relative include homosexuality. And that's it. And you're righteous end time. You die, you go to heaven. Easy life. Easy heaven can be reached by every goy. Now you came, you converted to Judaism, and you break Shabbat. Who can be dumber than you? You're the stup most stupid person in the world. It's hard for you. Doesn't matter. It's hard to make a living. It's hard to raise children. It's hard to get married. It's hard. It's, everything is hard. But we don't give up on it. Still go to work. Still try to make a living. Still go and run and try to make appointments with people. Hopefully I'll close the deal. Everything is hard. Surgeries is easy. Diets is easy. Do you know how difficult it is to lose five pounds to some people? They kill themselves. They don't eat bread. They don't touch sugar. They cut 50% of what they want to eat. And in the end, they gain three pounds this month. They want to jump from the terrace. It's also hard. So what, I'm going to kill myself? No. We move on. Frustration. But to give it all up, 
thinking, ah, I just went back to the way I was. No, you got a Jewish soul when you went to the mikveh. That's it. You're guilty for everything now. Every time you break Shabbat, punishment, stoning. There's no discount. Hey, I used to be Christina. You used to be. Now you're Sarah. And Sarah is going to be held guilty for every Hilul Shabbat when she posts on Facebook. It's one thing, let's say she doesn't have what to eat. So she started to walk. No, you understand where it came from. Weakness. She doesn't have money. She started to take phone calls, whatever. At least you understand where it came from. Why she has to post on Facebook? What's the emergency on Shabbat? Meaning, once you break all, that's it. You don't, don't, don't care about anything. And that's the problem. First you stop with this, and then this, and this, that, and then in the end you become worse than the days that you used to be a Goya. Poor girl. Sad, very sad. Probably there are thousands of Goyim like that, converted, and went back to do things that they could have done easy before with permission. Now they're going to be punished for every one of those things. Isn't it a shame? That's why before you convert a goy, you have to give them very hard time and be very strict with them for their own good. Convince them not to convert. That's what the bedding is supposed to do. Some bedding do it, some bedding are more lenient. It's not good. You have to be extremely strict. First, you have to check that they're mentally stable. Some people are not mentally stable. They have love for Hashem, they love Judaism, they love lecture, but they're not normal. You cannot convert people like this because they're not stable. And sometimes they're normal, but they're not stable when it comes to spirituality. Now, they're, now they're, they see the light, they have an enlightenment. Tomorrow they may go back to nothing. They don't understand the severity of becoming Mechalel Shabbat after you already converted and became a Jew. They always have in their mind that Satan tells them, Oh, don't worry. Anyway, it's to be Chris. So you went back to be Chris. That's how God made you, no? No, you fool. The soul was merged into you. There's a new soul came to you when you went into the mikveh. What do you, what do you, what do you think? You're not who you used to be. You have no relationship anymore with your biological parents, with your siblings, brothers, sisters, nothing. You count like a baby that was just born. You have no relatives. No relatives whatsoever. You understand? It doesn't mean that you have to go and fight your biological parents or disrespect them. You still respect them, be grateful to them, but you have no connection to them anymore. If they will convert and you converted, you, they're not your, no, your parents anymore. You are three converts. Each one of you is like a baby that was born today. You and your father and your mother are the same age. Why? Your parents are 50 and you are 25. But now in Shamayim, you are all one day old. Because all three of you converted in the same hour. How old is your father? Not 50. One day old. Because he has a new neshama. The body is 50 years old. The neshama is one day old in this world. That reminds me of a joke. We'll finish with this joke. One guy, Israeli, his mother told him, I heard in America they have a bottle, you know, that if you drink from it, you become 20 years younger. 
You heard about it? Yeah, yeah, I saw a commercial. Can you send it to me, please? Yeah, yeah, I'll send it to you. He sent them the bottle. A month later, he goes to Israel for the holidays. We'll pick you up from the airport, me, me and your father. Yes, curious how his mother looked after he sent her the medicine. He comes to the airport. <laughs> he looks for his parents. He sees a woman, very young, maybe look 20. And his mother was 50. He sees a woman, look 20, very young, and has a stroller with a baby. And she said, Moshe, Moshe, who is this young girl? Yes, can I help you? What do you mean, can I help you? I'm your mother. What? Yeah, the medicine you sent, look at me. I became 30 years younger. Wow, unbelievable. But who is this baby? That's your father, he drank the whole bottle. <laughs> All right, we'll see you tomorrow in Brooklyn, 8 p.m. Baruch Adonai Lo Olam, Amen Ve'Amen. Rabbi Hanania Ben Akashia